1: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela
0: Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
1: Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy Howes. Basic Folk is listener-supported. There's a couple ways that you can participate in our community. You can make a generous contribution. And if you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the entire year, you'll get access to our Superfund bonus content, which is located backstage at our website, BasicFolk.com. Uh, this month on Backstage, we have a friend hang with Maya DeVitri and Lizzie No. Lizzie's our guest host here on Basic Folk. And you can check out a preview of that in our regular podcast feed. It was pretty fun. We uh, talked about our favorite dog songs and our favorite songs in Spanish. Had a grand time. Uh, also, if you give $5 a month right now, you can get yourself a very cool handmade basic folk beanie that are hand-knit by my mom, Pat House. You can find those at our website, basicfolk.com. You can sign up for our newsletter at our website, or you can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Basic Folk is very happy to be on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can check out all of their fabulous podcasts wherever you find yours or at thebluegrasssituation.com. Today, we are talking to Suze Slezak, one half of the extremely talented and thoughtful band David Wax Museum. Suze, along with her husband David, has been touring and performing their Mexican-inspired Americana Folk Act since 2009. Along the way, the two got married, had a couple kids, and settled pretty finely into the pandemic with bi-weekly and then weekly live streams. All the while, Suze has been living with her bipolar disorder, which has impacted her life in incredibly unbelievable ways. She's also been pretty vocal, especially lately, about how she interacted with her brain health, mental health, and treatment for both of those elements, which includes her intense journey with medications. Her Instagram is filled with brutally honest posts about the difficulty of finding meds that continuously help her stabilize her brain. On her new album, Our Wings May Be Featherless, Seuss is addressing her life from the perspective of a person who's bipolar, a mother, a touring musician, and a creative person. She digs into the power of acceptance, traumatic birth, and grief. In our conversation, we talk about what a special musician she is and how she's been able to cultivate. Cultivate and keep a childlike wonder alive through her playing. This conversation is heavily rooted in Suze's journey with her bipolar disorder, and you'll learn a lot about her experience as she is very open. She addresses the choice to share her experiences publicly and how the sharing impacts her. About the album, she says, I hope that you'll also hear the way a song or any piece of art can transform haunting pain into sounds and rhythm, allowing it to finally diffuse. I have needed to make this record for a long time the relief I feel that it's finally emerging into this physical realm for you to enjoy is immense the new album Our Wings May Be Featherless by Sue Slezak is out now we're going to take a listen to a song from the new record Uh, this is Beautiful Mess and then we'll get to our conversation with Sue Slezak on Basic Folk
0: The world could set, even if it means breaking your bones, sorting through the dust, Wading through the muck, crawling if I must, waiting for a sign. I never saw my own heart open like a star chart, calling my name. The world.
1: I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to have this interview with you.
0: Oh, that's so sweet.
1: <laughs> Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, Cindy, for having me. Uh, I, I know you started music as a young child in Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah, I, I grew up outside
0: of town in a kind of a little town called Free Union, although it was just the countryside. My dad raised milk cows, kind of had a family homestead, and homeschooled my brothers and me. Like Holstein cows? No, just a couple Jersey cows. Oh, uh, okay. It's like he'd milk like the, one cow the, every day. The red ones? They're kind of reddish and have really creamy milk.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Were you helpful on the farm?
0: No, no, it wasn't really, <laughs> it wasn't really my thing. Um I mean, we would, you know, watch the cows being born if there were, you know, if the mom was calving, but, and sometimes my dad would make us do things like one time I remember he made it, my little brother and me um, pull out the horse nettle from a field because horse nettle's, you know, a yucky kind of weed. And I remember mm. just thinking, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to tell my kids that my dad made me pull horse nettle out of a whole field.
1: But mostly he did all the farming, though my little oh, brother wow. loves it and is now a farmer himself. <laughs> Um, So back to music, like surrounded by music um, in your family and in your community. You grew up around old time bluegrass fiddle, traditional Irish, classical and folk. Those are all a large part of your upbringing. Mm -hmm. So how did the way that you grew up around music set you up for the musician that you are today?
0: I don't think I ever would have thought I would, quote unquote, be a musician when I grew up. Because music was such a kind of a normal thing, it didn't feel special or didn't feel like something I'd want to study in college or, um, or pursue in a formal way. But after um, I moved back to Boston, after you know my own kind of personal um, meltdown <laughs> in my young twenties, um, I, I used music as kind of a way to build community, and you know, taking my fiddle to the Cantab in Boston. And meeting meeting people through jams felt like this really normal way, and natural way to meet people. Um, even though my friends then were like, you know, high teenage boys into old time music and older men, which is most of the old time community up there. Um, uh-huh. But it was it was such a music is such a way of bringing people together, obviously, and kind of cutting down barriers and um, you know having this other language that you can speak in. So I think it's a great way to to meet friends. And you know, I just. I released a, a single called "Take Me," and I was a friend just commented on the video I posted. Oh, today you released today. it today, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, congrats! And, thanks.
0: And she was mentioning like my piano form, and I had never seen myself play the piano, but I looked today, and I thought, wow, those hands are so good at piano. And of course, I you know <laughs> like took piano lessons since I was four through college, religiously, mm-hmm. and so I you know I have these skills that that I built up as a kid and that my parents really encouraged me and my brothers to focus on. And so it it feels so intrinsic Mm. to me that I think that certainly informs the musician I am now.
1: Mm. Isn't that crazy? Like, that happens to me sometimes when you know I've I've like read about some of your experience of how like the negative feedback inside your head can get so loud, but like to watch a video of yourself, you're like, oh, I can really play the piano. It's like so funny, so weird. And I think yeah,
0: I, I guess I think um you know I'm around so many incredibly technically talented musicians that went to music school and are kind of like geniuses on, for example, piano. And so I think it's so easy to compare, of course, but then. To mm. just see, yeah, to see this like watch these hands, and I don't really feel a lot of ownership of myself or body, if that mm. that might sound weird, but I guess I don't know, seeing a picture of myself, I'm like, oh, that's a lovely looking person, but don't really feel connected to that person, and similarly yeah. watching these hands, I feel like a little bit watching from the outside and just it's so amazing to watch, but just to see anyone play, including this body that is so called me. Um, it's pretty amazing to see mm. people's skills and the movement of hands that have been practiced mm-hmm. and rehearsed so long.
1: You were homeschooled, you mentioned. Um, so what did school look like and how do you think it like helped shape your personality?
0: Our main chore in the morning was to practice both of our instruments. So I would practice piano and violin every morning. And then we would sit at the dining room table and you know I had two brothers so we'd each do our math lesson whatever level we were at and my dad taught us Latin and French and a little Spanish and we'd sit on the couch and read story after story he would read to us but other than that our formal schooling was not that strict and we would just play outside for the rest of the day with a whole gang of homeschool kids who were in, lived close by mm. so I think that A, for the pandemic, and B, just to choose to be an artist and kind of not have a formal job. I feel like that came naturally to me. You know, I'm watching my kids when they're not in school kind of get up in the morning, kind of have to design your day and follow some sort of flow and have some sort of independence. And to me, that feels like such a gift to be able to give them now and to have had as a kid to kind of have to self-motivate and self-direct and have to figure out your own pleasure and your own um your own fantasy
1: world to live in because there's not that much else coming in when you're on your Mm. own and I think that's a wonderful thing um in talking about you and David as collaborators hope it's okay to focus on that a bit um you were David's first female collaborator at least that's what he told me Um, And he said, when we had our interview on the podcast, he said, she knows how to support me. She's breathing with me. It's so synced up. I've learned so much because she's such a masterful harmonist. I'm a more sophisticated musician because of her. Hmm, Wow. Wow. Right? What a (laughs) case. Now, I'd like to hear from like your perspective, what you can say about David as a musical partner there's different ways to classify musicians, right? There's usually some sort
0: of front person who's often a songwriter in our genre, right? Who's often a songwriter. And I think when you're a musician who doesn't feel like you have a kind of lead leading vocal voice, which I, I never, I never thought my voice was anything to write home about. Um, so I sort of leaned into harmonies, and then I, I hadn't done that much songwriting. And so to not be a front person and to be sort of a supporting musician, I think, always is a little bit uh, rough on your head and ego um, because the front person and the songwriter often get so much credit in a band for good reason. But I think it's been interesting as I've, you know, first felt like he's my, I'm supporting him and then starting to kind of become more um, confident with my soloing and my improv and the way that that kind of melds a song and then to become sort of his main editor because we live together. So every song has my eyes on it on every draft and he does multiple drafts. And then the other thing I really am realizing is such a key thing that I offer him is when he's upstairs kind of riffing on random melodies and tunes and chords, I'll be doing something else in the house and kind of hear something kind of epically beautiful. Like the chorus of singing to me, I remember you know, running upstairs and be like, did you record that? And he looked at me and said, did I record what? You know, he's like riffing so much and trying to get into this creative, you know, uncritical mode. Like unf-
1: unfiltered.
0: Totally. That I, you know, he didn't even know he'd sung this beautiful chorus of a song <laughs> that will like change people's lives, including mine. Um. So it's been so fun to sort of be like a, I don't know, like looking for gold and all the stones or something, kind of being the person who's sifting everything he's doing. Not everything, but you know, when I'm in the house with an ear towards it um, and helping to cho- find gems for him to work on. So I guess I'm, all this is to say kind of starting to own what kind of a cl- incredible collaboration it is and that he couldn't have done all that he did without me and that feels nice to feel like... Mm. Yes, it's like he will always have his name on the song and be the front person, although we think about it as co fronting the band. David Wax Museum. But to kind of realize the I'm like holding my hands in the like folded together, right? Or the fingers yeah, interlinked. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can't like hold water with a hand that is just fingers with you know, just the, the importance of the two and the the different skill sets coming together to form something whole.
1: Hmm. do you know watch house the band watch house do we love them are you have pals with, with yeah them? Mm-hmm. yeah so andrew from watch house um i actually asked him this question hmm. so that, um there's a little bit of a setup here uh in a lot of like female male duos it's mm-hmm. unusual for like the guy to have the lead vocals and for the female to be um the backup player so like when we were talking in our interview when I asked him this question I couldn't think of another band like that then later like he and I were actually like DMing about mm-hmm. that particular topic and I was like duh David Wax Museum and mm-hmm. he's like ha ah, we're not alone <laughs> um, so I wanted so he's like you should ask Emily who his, is his partner mm-hmm. and counterpart in Watch House you should ask Emily this question mm-hmm. and I also wanted to put it to you as somebody mm. who's in, like, a, 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 a band where the, the man is the lead and the woman is the backup. Mm. Like, how have you reflected on gender roles in musical performances versus the realities of your band? So I think, you know,
0: that's been such a journey, too. You know, I think, again, at the when I was joking about going to these jam sessions and meeting, like, 20, you know, teenage boys and older men, I think, you know, for reasons that we all see there are so many more male musicians um, who are performing publicly, at least. And, you know, I think because I didn't have much confidence as a 20-something playing, um, I'd just been, you know, coming out of my own mental health crisis and just never thinking I would. I was actually a good musician or had anything to offer or didn't think my voice was good and didn't think I knew how to play my violin very well, etc. All these kind of silly young person's stories um so I think it felt okay and like the only thing I could do to be kind of just kind of back up and just in the you know backup band and whatever he sings I'll sing a harmony to and and I guess I feel like as I've grown and as I as our partnership has developed as kind of the way I just was talking about I feel um just so much more empowered up there on the stage and you know yes I'm I'm only ever the only woman on stage with our band and, you know, usually in the venue you get there and you're the only woman and in a recording session you're the only woman. Um and I used to, you know, resent that and although I certainly want to encourage I can't wait to like produce other women and um but I think I've sort of leaned in now to just the idea of sort of the masculine and feminine in our band and trying to balance that and Even with what I am choosing to wear, like trying to wear beautiful, colorful, flowing, shapely things to kind of counteract the kind of, you know, David's also trying to wear beautiful, colorful, flowy things. Um, (laughs) But I guess just to try to, you know, do something different than the kind of classic uh, common, you know, bunch of guys up there with their T-shirts or polar, (laughs) their blues and earth tones.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if that answered your question. No, it was um it was good. Like I'm actually not even sure like exactly what I'm asking, so I'm I'm interested in whatever you have to react to that, you mm. know, where it's like if there's ever kind of like a weird sexism reversal where you walk in and they just like assume that like you're the lead singer because you're the, the oh, lady that's
0: interesting I haven't had that and it's probably because the name of our band has David's name in it so I wonder if that's you can't miss it <laughs> yeah so I wonder if that sort of if anything we have to be like Sue's kind of a co-co-fronter of this band so can you turn up her mic one thing that so often happened though when we were traveling with kids is like David would walk in get up on stage start setting up our stuff and I would have to like remind the guys that I actually was in the band even though I was toting kids and that was like oh you're in the band too you know I thought you were the babysitter Jeez, so that was never a nice moment
1: So you released a lullaby record in 2015 called Watching the Nighttime Come, which you made when your first baby, Calliope, was born. And in listening to the new album, Our Wings May Be Featherless, it is not a lullaby record, but there is like a childlike playful quality to your vocals, which I've like always thought was one of your strongest qualities as a vocalist. Like you're Mm -hmm. kind of like fearless and that you'll make these like beautifully bizarre like vocalizations in David Wax museum that some people like might not even think is a singer like it sounds like a keyboard or some kind of like weird sound effect thing but all this to say is like how do you approach your vocals and see that like childlike quality in your singing it's funny you ask about sort of the childlike um,
0: feeling of my voice and maybe the albums because I I honestly never feel like I'm much past 15, um, even though I just turned 40. And I, I guess one of the things I'm trying to do as a person is not lose sight of my childhood self, child self. And I think that, you know, part of being homeschooled was so much time to kind of be in my own little world. And it's really important to me to kind of keep that world and know that that world is me and that first world you create in your imagination and with your toys and with your little stories and whatever you make as a kid to me is so, I feel so close to that. I feel so close to the things, the tiny things I loved then, I still love and the, you know, songs and fabrics and stamps and flowers and um, I mean all sorts of tiny things that made up my small child world I still feel connected to and I feel like some a lot of these songs show those things um, and the sort of attention to tiny things which has always been so meaningful to me. So in some ways I feel like for you to hear sort of a childlike wonder in the songs I feel like is is intentional but it's also just me at 40 trying to
1: lean into the me I always was and not mm. reject that or forget it. That that really rings true for me, because I am also about to turn 40, and yeah. it's so great um, talking to all these other women who are also 40, like yourself, Aoife, O'Donovan, mm, Anais. love them all. Yeah, and they're all kind of, ha- like, it's it's great to be able to have these conversations, and, like, last night I was, like... I've been having trouble sleeping. I don't know why. Like, sorry to hear that. I don't know what's going on. But um, I used to like do do these like little like adventures like in my in my brain before I would like go to sleep as a kid. And I was like, what were those like adventures about? And then I was trying to do them again, and I like couldn't do it. Mm. And I was like, man, this kind of sucks. Mm. You know, like it seems like a like such a good practice to like try to reconnect with things that you liked when you were a little kid.
0: Totally, and I. Is that what? That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I guess I, when I think back about like what my Playmobil setups were as a kid, or what I played did with my dolls or animals, it was often like packing up everything into like a sled or a van or like road trippy type of thing. Which I'm like, perfect, touring musician, (laughs) like checks that (laughs) box. And it was always like family and bringing family along, Um, and this sort of community feeling which now that we have this new studio space in our backyard it feels like there's this place to have more of a community vibe and you know to kind of foster that in a small way Um, so I feel like to me like looking back at the things I loved as a kid is so helpful to like understand what I want to do now and what I want to focus on and you know, I know David, like, doesn't even quite remember what he did as a kid. He's like, well, I played some video games. I like these little, like, muscle men. Like, <laughs> what a boy. But, um, <laughs> but
1: to me, that, like, keeping that link is really important. Yeah, I love that. How much are you willing to share about that moment in your early 20s before you arrived at the Cantab, your, your breakdown? Well, I've
0: been so public about it. And I experienced my first mania as a young 20-something. And so when you experience full-blown mania, you get diagnosed as bipolar. And it felt, you know, so hard to get that kind of terrible diagnosis. I'd never even heard of it. And it's like one of the top two ranked worst mental illnesses in the history of mental illnesses or whatever it's kind of ranked as. Yeah, bipolar and schizophrenia are sort of up there Mm. as the kind of the top two hardest, maybe hardest to treat. Though I don't think ranking mental illness is even like a good thing to
1: do or reasonable. That <laughs> sounds but, like a BuzzFeed listicle. Um,
0: <laughs> top 10. Um, <laughs> in any case, it was really such a harsh uh, label to get. But on the other hand, I had been suffering so much from depression and didn't have any word for it. I had explained it away in all these ways. And so to get a word that helped me see that these are symptoms depressive symptoms are symptoms and you can I can like check every box of things that I went through mania is a symptom of a brain that's going too fast and I was able to check off every box of what manic symptoms were and that felt like a real gift and I think that I mean I say that now like 16 years later right but um I do want to speak openly about it because it feels like such a personal thing when like the software of your body is dealing with a an issue but when you can really try to remove yourself, and when I was kind of joking about not really feeling in my body, I feel like I'm also leaning into not being too stuck in my head and trying to really look at it for what it is and look at my thoughts as, as crazed as they are for what they are and um, to see what you're going through as symptomatic of a brain that's for some reason like gets really slow and depressed and then speeds up and gets manic, you know, often based on not getting enough sleep. Or other factors or I don't know why um, but being able to look at those from the outside is so healing and so illuminating and I just to talk about it makes me feel like oh people should talk about this it's not that personal mm. I know when you're depressed you think you're a lazy piece of shit but it's actually your brain is like not letting you see that life is meaningful it like makes you actually want to disappear rather than get better and that's such a weird terrible part of depression it's like such a tricky it's so tricky um, because it Mm. being in that brain state makes you feel like you don't even want to get better and that's very problematic as we know
1: so currently your identity is like rooted in several things outside of music and one of the big ones is of course mental health awareness Um, you just spoke of being diagnosed as bipolar and are pretty public about life with a bipolar brain Um, in terms of, like, having the diagnosis and experiencing your first mania in your 20s. Can you talk about your experience with mental health as a kid and how your experience as a kid and now as an adult has impacted you the way you approach your own kid's mental health?
0: Because, I mean, it was not, you know, I knew we have like, this certain person my parents would say is mentally ill and it was sort of, like, a shameful thing. And, you know, I'd never really heard of man. Depression or bipolar. I just hadn't. I just wasn't aware. When I I lost a friend to suicide when I was just fifteen. He was. uh, We were in tenth grade, and that was such a turning point for me to even open up this idea that the body can look okay, but the mind or the brain can not be okay. Um, But then, of course, I've had a whole lifetime of trying to adult life of trying to understand that, like what suicide could possibly be and mean. And then with my own diagnosis, what what it means to, to kind of see, have the brain, have to be inside a brain that is flailing and going in all different directions, like way down, way up, and sort of everywhere in between. So I'm really, because of all the study I've done with all the spiritual gurus and Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie and Abraham Hicks and, um, you know, the Buddhist thinkers that are um, such you know, all the the teachers that so many people follow, um, I've really come to my own understanding of what I was describing earlier of feeling like the self, you know, is, you know, we're embodied with these bodies, but feeling like the self is not the brain, is not your thoughts, and isn't exactly your body, even though you are very intimately linked. But I try to help my kids already, you know, watch feelings come and go. We talk about them as weather systems. So like, how stormy was that? Is there, is, it, is there still rain? Is it still feel cloudy? You know, sort of describing feelings that way to watch them come and go just like weather does. We talk about kind of scary thoughts as these things or pesky thoughts or rascally thoughts. And I check in with them at night about how their, their mind is if they're feeling like it's kind of racing or rascally. And one time my daughter said, I did have a scary thought, but I sent it to the back of the line. And I, and I thought, oh, my God, that's so that's so enlightened and also so beautiful. But then I also took credit for kind of even helping her see that thoughts can be identified. And she's eight, you know, and mm-hmm. that was probably that's when she so was good. six. So just, you know, trying to lean into all the questions with them and like, why would you wait to talk? About, I mean, I didn't my parents might not have. I'm not blaming my parents. My parents were <laughs> wonderful humans on their own journeys. But um You know, now that I've learned so much about not believing in thoughts and, you know, just not buying into how bad things feel because they will change, it's been so gratifying to share with kids. And they get it. It's not actually that complicated. It's just hard if you become an adult totally entrenched in your terrible thinking patterns and don't see Mm. them as patterns. Mm -hmm. So I feel Mm. so overjoyed that I get to practice these things I've been learning and share them with the kids and it's so helpful for them like automatically Mm. it's I I I hope I know that there's more you know changes in education and more opportunity for lots more people to learn these things
1: you know you you were talking about how people should talk and people should share about um, what's going on with them in terms of mental health and your Instagram is like really interesting to me like it seems like there was like a shift in the way that you shared information and the way that you um ran your instagram Um, like february 2021 you started posting more about your journey and struggles with mental health and they're very like honest and very long posts and i've noticed that like most of them are pictures of you like selfies where you have a particular look that seems pretty intentional um, can you talk about the the choice to share your experiences in that format the choice for your photos and what the sharing does for you
0: yeah it's it's interesting you pinpoint that date I rem- I don't remember when it was that I must have tried it once right i must have just taken a selfie been feeling something it was probably like a little bit hypomanic because i definitely don't feel like sharing anything when i'm depressed because it feels gross and like why would anyone care because i don't care when i'm depressed Mm. so it must have been sort of a hypomanic ish moment and i probably thought i looked good because you think you look good when you're manic you know everything like you look a little sexier than usual and um i say that
1: tongue-in-cheek ish (laughs)
0: Great. Because I probably do look You're, you're like then. Jessica
1: Rabbit <laughs> side came out.
0: I don't know TV references because I didn't have a TV, oh, but damn. I assume that's
1: a TV reference. You're Marilyn Monroe. You heard of that? Yes. Iconic yes. figure? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um,
0: I probably noticed that when I did this little spiel about like what i just gone through, I I, I can go back and look what that first post was that you're referencing, but it probably was, oh my God, I was like in the pits and now I'm feeling better and sort of describing that feeling or change or how weird it is that our depressed brain does this thing. I don't know what it was, but like, I got so many hits, right? You just, people were dying to like that post and comment on that post. And it was such a, a wake up call, and of course, then I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to try that again. I'm going to say something else interesting that I think is interesting, and maybe someone else will." Or actually, I probably posted a picture of my garden, and then there was no no hits. So, in some <laughs> ways, and then I tried them. you did the, you, know, you did some A B testing <laughs> <laughs> totally. And of course, obviously, it's not for the hits. I really don't care about hits anymore. Well, that's not true, but I don't try to get my adrenaline from how many likes I get in a post. However. It feels very significant and exciting to me if this is a spark of conversation or if people can connect with those same brain states because it's just one weird thing that our human brain does. It's very strange. I don't know why it does it. But getting depressed happens to be a thing that lots of brains do. And of course they do. them sometimes for external reasons, sometimes for internal reasons, scientists don't know and there's no test. You can't take a blood test and say, yep severely depressed, right? You have to follow all these symptoms. But people are also in these thought ruts. Anyway, I could go on about that. But I guess Mm -hmm. for the Instagram question, when I saw the feedback, and the response and sort of the need, it felt like this release valve for people. And so I, I kept doing it. And I think you know, someone looking, I like do a selfie and look at the little camera hole rather than looking at myself. Cause when you look at yourself, you know, it looks like you're looking down. So I look at the camera hole and take <laughs> my picture and, um, people really respond to that. Like I'm looking at you and telling you this thing that has happened to me and I'm not trying to wallow in it. You know, a lot of people are like, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. And I don't even, I don't want their, I, I don't, I'm not looking for their sympathy because I, I don't feel bad about depression anymore. I just like, slip down some days. I'm so lucky to have a partner who picks up my, the pieces and lets me rest. And then I come out of it. I've been, you know, on an incredible journey to find figure out good medicines, and I'm on good medicines now and so grateful for that and trying to share about that too, like why we will take a Tylenol and we won't take an antidepressant. It's really dumb, mm. and I've been there too, and I feel like psychiatric meds, you know, feel gross or they feel – weird or i might you know gain weight or lose my libido or something you know we've all these like things we say about why we shouldn't take i won't be myself but then you're like are you yourself when you're depressed are you actually a stable weight when you're depressed no everyone's probably you know you're not wanting to eat or eating too much is your libido great when you're depressed no it's not so take it to depression like why are you scared
1: about that or making up these excuses for not trying it if you need it Um, you talk about mental health in terms of brain health and also your mind's health. This is something you've had some like pretty uh, intense Instagram posts about, and it just sounds like amazing um, to lay it out so clearly, and also uh, it seems like a lot of work to keep both of these in check. Can you define both of them and what your relationship has been to both of these practice and how you balance them? them each
0: yeah I I didn't really come to that understanding for myself until this year I feel like I was able to articulate that I think that you know your mind is this space that thoughts and emotions and it's what consciousness is right it's like the ability to see or feel or observe what's going on here because honestly what is going on here I have no idea (laughs) but whatever kind of the mind you know it's like we have all these strange words too that get conflated but I think the mind is, you know, this space that all these things happen in. So one thing that's happening is crazy thought patterns and like really mean to ourselves and mean to other thought patterns. And oh, just all the terrible thought patterns that we have that, you know, turn into beliefs and we believe them and we feel terrible when we think those thoughts and it affects our physical health. You know, you think this scary thought and you literally get an adrenaline buzz. You read the news, you get an adrenaline, but it's like very physical. Things that happen in the mind are very physical because they affect our, our physical selves. But I've really tried to decouple that from bipolar or, or from what's happening in my brain when it goes, gets depressed or manic. And I believe that everyone needs to deal with their mind and their mental, everyone needs to deal with their fearful thoughts. Everyone needs to deal with their anxious thoughts, their mean thoughts, their beliefs that they've had that are just really not helpful to them, right? So everyone needs to deal with their quote-unquote mental health, if you want to call it that. But some people's brains also do weird things like cycle between depression and mania. Some people's brains slip very easily into addictive behaviors. Some people's brains, oh, they do all kinds of things. They have strokes. They get cancer, right? Brains do all kinds of things. I'm not taking medicine to deal with my mean thoughts, right? I have to do that no matter what. Mm -hmm. I will say it's very hard to deal with your mean thoughts if you're depressed because those two do go hand in hand. But less for me now. I don't, now when I'm depressed, I really, I don't get that mean or mad at myself as I used to or super pessimistic or deathly gross, right? I, I really am starting to just like watch my brain slow down. My motivation goes my willingness to see people goes away, my interest in performing goes away, my will <laughs> takes flight is this like phrase I've been thinking of. And then it comes back. So but then I but also when I'm going down to that place I am way less I I, I go down the crazy thought patterns way less during that. And that's been such a helpful thing to like notice, you know, I had this wonderful friend say the sneaky spiral of hate or something, you know, and all of a sudden you, like, get on this thought pattern. You're just like, oh, you're going down because you're Mm. – So I take medicines to help my brain not do those cycles. I can't take a medicine to be happy. You're not taking a happy pill when you're taking an antidepressant. You're, like, stabilizing the brain so that you can still do all the things that make you happy, and that includes inner work. That includes movement. That includes – eating well, that includes seeing friends, that includes making art, that includes creativity and purpose and all these things that we all have to work on whether or not you have a brain that does weird cycling things or weird addictive things or Mm -hmm. any of the numerous things that a human brain can do.
1: You're hitting all the good stuff. These are all the hits. Um, (laughs) You have spoken of and posted about how feelings are fleeting and uh, we've all done meditations where there's like a focus on how bad feelings won't last forever and have like done, I've like done that plane meditation. You're on an airplane where you like try to notice when the panic is gone after the turbulence has stopped, you know, um, which is like one thing. Nice. I don't know that one. That's a great one. Yeah. You're you're just like, I don't know, just like recognizing the fact that like, oh, you're not panicked anymore. And it's like so great. Um. But the thing that I've been thinking about and that you have addressed a little bit is when you talk about realizing that the good day is not going to last forever and being okay with that. So how do you get to that place of being okay with fleeting peace?
0: When I'm having a good day, I've I've taught myself and almost rarely think, oh God, but this is going to, might be the last one. I really don't think that because that's also like this very like depressing thought, right? So- and it's so fatalistic. So I I have said that thing actually because before I was on really nice stabilizing medicines, I would have no idea what the next day would be like. And that was even in 2021. Like I I just sort of found this latest um combo of of a mood stabilizer and antidepressant just last summer. So it's not but it's like as soon as you get into a good day, you sort of like feel like, Oh, this is my baseline like I can forget about the fact that I'm quote unquote bipolar or whatever, which is also kind of nice. I don't know. It's like nice amnesia. But if I do think, oh God, this might not last, you know, David really checks me. He's like, oh, you know, why, do you, why are you saying that? Like, Or if I'm really in that state, then I probably am not stable enough and I need to keep figuring out a different medicine dosage or regimen.
1: Something that you've touched upon in our conversation is acceptance and the and I thought it'd be fun to talk about the power of acceptance. This is kind of a, a long setup, but your song Beautiful Mess on the new album, it says it charts her journey from the depths of her bipolar disorder to an empowered acceptance of her own illness. So there's this Joseph Campbell quote that you keep by your writing desk and desk and that is actually In the song, Beautiful Mess, and the quote is, The world is perfect. It's a mess. It's always been a mess. We're not going to change it. Our job is to straighten out our own lives. So that, to me, sounds like radical acceptance. Um, I don't know if you study that concept at all, but radical acceptance basically minimizes suffering. Um, Some quotes from you about it, you say, I feel like I've reached a new phase of experiencing depression that doesn't include as much suffering as it used to. I try to keep a very blank and open mind almost like a meditation it's not particularly fun now this is when the, um, the symptoms would you call them like symptoms are hitting you um, but it's no longer as emotionally debilitating so now when I lie in the chair unable to move for a few hours it's uncomfortable but not painful so can you explain what that's like and how the symptoms of your bipolar disorder, your depression, your mania, differ now that you've learned to call upon acceptance?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I touched on that a bit, you know, with kind of describing like the, I feel my brain slowing down, motivation goes... I don't really feel like eating. I definitely don't feel like seeing anyone. I don't feel like doing anything anymore. You know, you sort of watch your will disappear. That's to me these, like I have these red flags, like, oh God, I don't want to see any. Oh, I can't go pick up my kid because then I'd have to see someone, you know, this kind of like these kind of common patterns that I see myself slipping into. Oh my God, we have to do a live stream. Like who would ever want to watch us on screen? That is so dumb. I've, you know, I feel terrible, et cetera. So there's different, these different flags. But now I've really seen those so many times. I have been through it so hundreds of times, like, cause my cycling is pretty fast. So, and then I've seen I, hundreds of times in my journals, I say, oh my God, I was feeling so bad yesterday, but man, I feel what like, what was the problem? <laughs> I feel great, you know? And I just kind of go on some tear. And I've been through that sort of like rising into kind of hypomania so many times. So. It's, it's like this familiar thing. I don't want to say it's like a pal. I feel like people have talked about depression as like this old friend. They're trying to befriend things, right? But it's become so normalized, even though I'm tricked by it every time still. Almost every time I'm like, God, why was I thinking my life was so good? I suck, right? You kind of go, and then you're like, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Not true. <laughs> um, and same with the hypomania is so interesting because it promotes creativity. from For me, you know, often the mania is not that extreme. So it's still in this sort of like fun realm, although it also can carry a lot of anxiety. But I want to write all of a sudden, I want to write for hours. I do have songs come to me, I do have, you know, get so much done and have so much flow potential. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to pretend like that's not real, just because it's in this kind of manic box right because then it's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater or something it's like well I don't know to sort of give up on the beauty of that also doesn't make sense however the trouble with treating bipolar disorder is that because the manic side can be fun it's like people don't want to give it up and so they don't want to take meds and maybe I've found this medical regimen now that allows me to have little bits of mania and little bits of depression and maybe i'm settling for that because it's so mild and you're okay with that it's so mild compared to the past Mm -hmm. and maybe it's in a normal maybe everybody has like a needs a rest day and Mm. calling it you know deep rest instead of depressed and kind of (laughs) trying to like
1: flip that a little bit um i wanted to talk about the song why luke which is about your friend Luke who died by suicide 25 years ago when you were in the 10th grade. Um, Could you talk about who Luke was and what you've learned about life, death, and grief from him?
0: Just a small question, Cindy. Just to
1: to wrap things up here. Um,
0: Luke was a, a really close friend of mine. We went to a tiny school where there were just, I don't know, 20 of us in our class or something. Um, so we were all quite close and he was someone that I loved and we all loved and everyone had a secret crush and I had maybe he, I, you know, it's just like the high school, ah, all the, all the ways you love each other in high school. And I didn't know, I knew he had quit school the month before, but I didn't know the word depression and I didn't know if he had gotten on meds and, you know, I don't know, maybe he was bipolar, maybe he was depressed. I don't, I don't know. That's all, it's all. It's all a mystery to me now, but dealing with that incredible grief that lasted so long, it was sort of this marker for me, like even as I was going to depression, like, oh, that's the ultimate thing. That's like, if you don't deal with depression, suicide can happen, right? Because it's like worst case scenario. And it's the way why depression should be called an illness is because sometimes you die of a serious illness people die of all kinds of serious illnesses, including depression. I don't believe it's anyone's fault. I don't believe that he chose it. It's that's such a weird way that people talk about it. And I think that needs to really end because his brain was dealing with an extreme version of something that a lot of us deal with on lesser to lesser extent. But I think um, writing the song for me was such a, a powerful way of trying to reframe it. And, you know, the line about um part of me died the day you did and then um like you would have never wanted me to to, you would have never wanted to take me down with you or something like that sorry I can't remember the line of my song but um just trying to flip it and be like what would Luke want me to be doing right now is being an artist being a musician embracing being open loving, right? He was such a loving person. Oh, my God, he was an incredible human that I like, he would be an incredible four year old. I, I miss that I don't, you know, won't get to see him as an adult. Um, but to like, think that if someone goes down, we should go down too, or like, not just doing anything to help ourselves. Um, I just feel like, yeah, that sense of thinking about him and what he would have wanted was a really helpful way for me to finally um,
1: deal deal with such a, a tragedy about the album you say I hope you'll also hear the way that a song or any piece of art can cr- transform that haunting pain into sounds and rhythm allowing it to finally diffuse I've needed to make this record for a long time and the relief I feel that it's finally emerging into this physical realm for you to enjoy is immense. Mm. What does that relief feel like for you? I think like so many people,
0: you know, we hold our pain inside and we hold these burdens and just carry them along and kind of lug them along with us. And to be able to, you know, make this beautiful thing. I love these songs to me are so beautiful. I I love them all. And the fact they're so linked to hard parts and beautiful parts of my life, um, it's like the, yeah, the stones can like be wrapped in this song now and sort of be allowed to float away a little bit. Um, and maybe that's too cheery of a, or sugarcoating something like pretending like I won't feel these things anymore, but it, it really feels like it's lightened the load. And then watching the ways that other people are like, you know, touch that song being that sort of exists now, like, Oh my God, I, I had that experience or, Yes. Mm. Um that's just magic. That's incredible. You know, the song is now a thing. I, I I you know, I think a lot of artists talk about kind of being a vessel for songs. And I start, I like don't even remember writing these. A few of them I sort of remember being at a piano or sitting on my bed with a notebook, but it's like they came. We jotted them down. <laughs> Anthony DeCosta, my amazing producer, whipped them into super beautiful shape and I love that they are existing and that other people can
1: touch them and be touched by them there's that one song that anthony starts Mm. singing on and i was like what is going on and then (laughs) and then you started singing i was like oh yeah that's i forgot his his voice sounds like androgynous and beautiful and it's It's such a cool song i can't remember secret places that one yeah secret places places Places. yeah it was fun to sort of
0: lean into this duet idea and sort of be talking to each other um I wrote the song, but it was one that I'd, I didn't feel a lot of closeness to, the eye in it, or the narrator, and so it was fun to let him sing it and sort of respond to it. I like Gives that it a one. little bit of a different, different feel.
1: What's happening with the new studio, and can you fill in folks who might not know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, during the pandemic, um, we just played one of our last shows. It was a house concert outside of Charlottesville, and met this gentleman, and he just wanted to help us in some big way and it he became a kind of incredible benefactor to our band and the way that he wanted to support us and our music was to build us something and help build us something and we got our fan community together and during the pandemic people chipped in so generously and this we have this beautiful studio in our backyard that's like this tall barn full of space and light and amazing acoustics it was inspected today and we passed the final inspections so there's just (laughs) a few final things that need to be done um, before we can move in and start using it for all kinds of creativity I it was designed originally as a recording studio but once we saw what it's actually like it's almost like Levon Helm's barn in Woodstock, but Ooh. it's smaller, like a mini version of that. Yeah. But there's a balcony that people can sit on to watch music and I think it can baby be barn. part of a, it's a baby barn. Love it. <laughs> um you know, part part recording studio but part small venue or creativity space. I don't it's it's really I mean it's just so beyond what I could have even wished for. Um but I feel like David and I did, like jokingly when we were twenty nine or something, be like, Oh, why isn't there just someone who would just want to Build us a recording studio or something, and of course. I mean, not of course, but luckily <laughs> years <laughs> decade plus later, something like that just happened. So oh, that's so awesome. It's really like an open slate blank slate right now in terms of what it will bring to us. But I think lots of amazing things will be able to happen there.
1: Great. All right, Suze, let's do the lightning round. Okay. Are you ready for it? I, I okay. didn't know
0: there okay, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready.
1: Yeah, you're ready. Okay. Um, what was the first song you learned on the piano? Probably something Suzuki like "Lightly Row."
0: Lightly Row, Lightly Row, dee 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 dee
1: dee dee. What is your karaoke song?
0: I am too embarrassed to sing karaoke. I would rather do almost anything than sing karaoke. Wow. Okay. Uh, dogs or cats or something else? I don't like dogs, and I don't. I say it try not to say it publicly because it's a shameful part of me. I don't either. Like, I don't like wow. cats either. What happened? I know
1: David's allergic.
0: Yes, and I grew up on a farm with dogs and cats. I don't know. I don't know. But I I try not to say it too much, but I just did. Do you like any animal? I like farm animals, wild animals, all kinds of animals. Birds, fish. I like all the animals. Just not man's best friend. Except
1: dogs and cats. I don't Uh, like pets. I like like outdoor animals. How convenient that you and David have found each other. (laughs) Because I feel like that was his answer verbatim in the lightning round. (laughs) He's heard me say that probably. <laughs> okay, who was your first celebrity crush? Gillian Welch. Mm. Um, aside from David Wax, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Brett Miller. What is the first album you bought with your own money? Gillian Welch. <laughs> Which one? Um, Orphan Girl.
0: Mm. Good one. Is that um, eighth grade? Eighth grade or ninth yeah. grade or something. What a good first album. What was your first concert? Big one was Dave Matthews at Nissan Pavilion. I drove up with two really cool boys and their mo- well, their mom drove us and it was like seventh grade. Then I got to sleep over mm. at their house. It was pretty exciting. Whoa. I mean they were in their bedroom and I was in the I was in the
1: den or uh. something, but flying or invisibility? Flying. No. Mm. Uh, yes. Flying. Flying, okay David chose invisibility, by the way. I'm
0: gonna talk mm. to him about that. <laughs>
1: Uh Star Trek or Star Wars?
0: I don't watch TV. mm I don't really know much about either.
1: Okay. Uh what about Lord of the Rings or Narnia?
0: Oh fantasy. Um
1: Little House on the Prairie. Uh okay, Little House on uh, the Prairie uh, or Highway to Heaven. I don't know. Wait, that that's one. also TV. Oh that's But throw me some books. Okay, wait. Oh here we go. Okay. Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm or Little House on the Prairie. Little House in
0: the Prairie all the way.
1: You're just waiting for me to offer a different alternative, and you were going to go with that anyways. Okay. This is the last one. It's not a TV reference. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: My own heart. Oh, God. I mean, because you can go anywhere in there.
1: You can go anywhere. You can't argue with that. Was that
0: cheesy? That was a cheesy
1: ending. No. No, I think it was good.
0: It's just all in my fantasy world. Except you hate fantasy. Fantasy. Good
1: point. Novels. Cindy? you got me there thank you <laughs> Suze, thank you so much this has been a really great conversation a lot a lot about mental health but um i'm i'm really happy that you're being so vocal about what's happened to you and what's going on with you and um this new record i think is going to help a lot of people so thank you oh, thanks cindy so nice to see you and chatting. Today's episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Find all of their podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. Okay, let's see. What else do we have to put here? I think that's basically it. And you've made it all the way to the end. And everyone is very happy with you. Thank you so much. You can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk at our website, basicfolk.com, or wherever you get podcasts. Okay. Bye.